please be seated. Let me invite you now to open your Bibles to the book of Romans as we continue our series. We're in chapter 1, and we will be reading verses 24 to 32. Um, a very dark and dour uh, section of Scripture in many ways, uh, which uh, speaks to every one of us probably in different ways as we take our time to unpack it and look at it and plow through it. By the way, it's good to be back with you this Sunday. We were uh, in uh, on the Gulf Coast last week, and uh, always good to get away, but always good to come back. Uh, but I'm telling you, it's getting rougher and rougher to count on the airlines these days. Uh, it's, it's a journey. It is a uh, challenging thing. So hear now the word of the Lord as I read from the book of Romans, chapter 1, beginning in verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, in, uh, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they knew or know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, we do pray today that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. And we do pray that the Holy Spirit will enable the one who speaks as well as the one who hears to receive the truth and to love the truth and to be responsible to the truth that we're going to hear today from your word. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. In verse 24 of this particular text, Paul has been focusing on humanity's vertical relationship with our creator. And just to bring you back up to speed where we were since we did not look at Romans for the last two weeks, God is revealing two things 
presently in the world in which we live. He's in revealing his righteousness through the word of the gospel, the good news that God grants to people who repent of their sins and trust in him alone and extend an empty hand something called righteousness, which means a right status forever with God. The ultimate validation any person could ever seek in life is given to us freely by grace, not something we work to attain, not something we try to become in and of ourselves apart from the Holy Spirit, but pure grace, a pure gift total and absolute mercy, we can forever be right with God. And so as the gospel goes out, it creates what it calls for. The gospel creates faith as people believe it, and they're set right with God under his favor forever. But there's also a second dimension to this righteousness, and it's called the wrath of God, the judgment of God, God's intense hatred of evil and what it does to his creation. God hates evil the same way you and I hate cancer. We hate what it does to a human body, how it invades, how it makes a person sick, how it takes away our life. God hates wickedness and unrighteousness. And the wickedness and unrighteousness that God abhors and hates is that men do a very unrighteous and a very godless thing by suppressing the truth in their hearts about the nature of God's existence when they know it. And it's clearly seen through the media of creation. People are doing a very wicked thing. They are exchanging the truth of God for the lie. More people believe the lie than believe the truth. It's only natural to a fallen person to do this, to suppress the truth, to hold it down, to quench it, to, to choke it out. And by virtue of doing that, a mankind moves from worshiping and serving the only wise, glorious God and begins to worship and serve the creature or the creation. And because of that, our vertical relationship is God, with God is broken, but the vertical relationship with God has a connection to the horizontal relationship we have with people and creation. And so this unrighteousness, this wickedness, not only blocks a person in terms of a relationship with God, but it also is like a festering, like pus, as it were, that spreads its way throughout the earth relationally uh, among the human family and among creation itself. And it's ugly and it's terrible because God does something that is striking. Will God forever put up with people suppressing his truth? Does God's patience, quote, ever run out as it were? Does his common grace and his gentleness and mercy with us ever reach a point of saying no more? And the answer is sadly yes. 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 God gives people over to what they want if they want something that is not him. And so what we see in this passage is what is called judicial abandonment. 
We saw this early in the book of 1 Samuel when we did the series on uh, David, uh, the king after God's own heart. And we talked about how the people of Israel wanted a king so they could be like the nations. And God, through his prophet, resisted that request and eventually said, okay, give them a king. But I'll tell you what will happen. He will take your sons. He will take your daughters. He will take your money. He will take this and that away from you. But I'm going to give you what you want so you will see that if I'm not your king, life is not going to go well for you. And he did that when he gave that nation Saul. And it was a devastating effect. So is there a point in which God says, no more? And there is, and it's sad. From Genesis 3 onward, when people rebelled against God, he confronts, corrects, and calls to repentance. What do you think it was when God went seeking Adam and Eve in the cool of the day when they used to enjoy fellowship and closeness with him, and he pursued them in the garden and said, Adam, where are you? That's God coming and calling people, Adam and Eve, who had sinned, who were now naked, guilty, filled with shame, uh, whereas they had been naked before with no guilt and no shame. But because of sin, they ran from God, they hid from God, they tried to cover their nakedness. But God came to them. They sought a righteousness of their own by weaving together the fig leaves to cover their shame, brokenness, and nakedness and the flaws of their own being. But God came and God came and he called. And he called to repentance. But Romans 1 says that a refusal to listen may lead God to withdraw and let mankind remain in error therefore God gave them up to the lust of their hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is God blessed forever and this exchange this unholy exchange exchanging the one who made us the one who created us in his image, the one who wrote in our hearts, in the very center of our being, a passion and a desire to worship and serve has now turned away from the creator and has turned to the creature and idolatry becomes normative for life. See, everybody's seeking righteousness, everybody's seeking validation, and the way we do it is either through Jesus or what the Lord has made. And here, God begins to lift his hand of restraint. God doesn't coerce. There's no power here. God can never be the author of sin. He's holy. But he does lift his hand of restraint. People often ask me, Pastor Tim, do you think America is worse now than it ever has been in the history? And my answer to that is both yes and no. In one sense, yes. It seems like the hand of restraint that God had upon this nation through the church, through the presence of his spirit, through the doctrine of common grace, was restraining evil in our culture. But I sense and see that's long gone. We no longer live in Christendom. Christendom is when all of the major institutions and spheres and modes of life and being in a country are influenced by biblical truth. That's no longer true. We live in a pluralistic nat uh, nation now in which God is no longer welcome. 
But all of this stuff has always existed. It's always been present. It's just has somehow been restrained by the grace, goodness of God to keep us from destroying ourselves. But it appears now more than ever. It's always been there, but it was more undercover. Now it's open. Now it's in your face. Now it's down your throat. Now it's hostile. And so God has released his hand of restraint. And that's a terrible, horrible thing because who knows where it's going to go. I know where it's going to go. And it's not good. And so, after humans sink into idolatry, God gives them up to their ways. And by repeating, God gave them up in verse 24, verse 26, verse 28, Paul stresses that God punishes humanity by lifting his restraints. This judicial abandonment lets people go their own way, doing whatever they please, and this is a familiar theme throughout the Bible. I can remember when I was a 17-year-old boy and graduated from high school, and the thought in my heart and being is, I am going to be so glad to leave home. I'm going to be so bad, glad to get out of this stinking town where I can do what I want, I can be who I want to, nobody's going to tell me what to do. I was Captain Autonomous, the captain of my fate, the master of my soul, and I was going to get out there and swing. And then to my surprise, God saved me. <laughs> I was not looking for him. He was looking for me, and he found me. And he saved me by his grace, purely by grace. But to say it another way, God lifts restraint. He does it. In Romans 1, God gives people up to the lust or desires for impurity that dishonor the human body. By the way, the body in biblical Christianity is far more important uh, than any other religion. Because the body itself for a Christian is the temple of the Holy Spirit. It is sacred ground. And so the body is not just a tack-on or add-on, something we lose. We know it gets old. We know it breaks down. We know it eventually dies. But we will not be complete until we have a new body. But here, God brings judgment upon humanity by lifting his restraint. And therefore, impurity and uncleanness and over-desires, call it epithumia in the Greek. Epi means over, and thumia means desires. And so these are lusts that feed on themselves, that are out of control. And when God lifts the restraints, people act like beasts. You driven around here lately? Have you been riding on the interstate in your neighborhood? It's the only place I've ever lived where somebody makes a right turn from the inside lane of four lanes. Never looks back. Never checks to see if anybody's coming. I feel like I need a new set of brakes every week. Why? Restraints being lifted. We live in a very antinomian culture, a very against-the-law culture, and laws are like guardrails that pr protect us from going over the side of the mountain. And you may not like some of them, and I may not like some of them, but they keep us from destroying ourselves. But the lawlessness of idolatry creates a whole new lifestyle. God gives people up to that. And most often... Impurity and uncleanness 
points to sexual acts. But disorderly physical desires also lead to drunkenness, gluttony, and other forms of self-destruction. In Romans, the use of the body is a sign or a marker of one's spiritual salvation. We are to yield ourselves now to the power of the Spirit and no longer give into and become instruments of the flesh. There's more than one way to do evil or good with the body. That said, Paul does, at this point, focus on a sexual issue, or let's say issues plural. The Bible asserts that humans know enough to be culpable, so he confronts us with the call to repentance. If we refuse to listen, then the Lord may withdraw and let us stumble into idolatry and moral decay. Paul observes that God gave people up or handed them over to degrading passions. That is, passions that make us less, not more. They do not enlarge the soul. They shrink the soul and the spirit. Degrading passions. Now, I'm going to get into some stuff here that I want to be incredibly sensitive about. As I talk about the issue of homosexuality, uh, I know that people have all kinds of perspectives and viewpoints on this that they hold with a great deal of passion. Almost all of our families these days are at least one person in our immediate or general family may be participating in homosexual behavior or relationships or even marriages. And I do not, by any sense of the term, want to elevate homosexuality to the ultimate heinous sin for which God will destroy you and send you to hell uh, forever just by mentioning the fact that you might be participating in it. On the other hand, I want to be clear. I am called and set apart by the Lord Jesus Christ, the PCA in this denomination, to preach to you what the Bible says. And I cannot shrink back from that because teachers and preachers will give a greater account before the judgment seat than anyone else. And the responsibility I have before you is to deal with this truthfully. I do not want to do so in a self-righteous way. There's not a bigger sinner anywhere than me. I know that about myself. My brother and I were sitting in uh, a seminar one time called Institutes of Basic Youth Conflict. And uh, it was called Bill Gothard's seminar, and this happened a generation or two ago. And I had really long hair, and it just sort of come back out of the world, back into the church. And uh, they started talking about Romans 1, and they were listing all the sins in Roman, Romans 1. My brother and I were looking at one another, and we checked that one, checked that one, checked that one. We'd done them all recently, and we were checking and checking and checking. And finally, he came down and said, you know, uh, he started talking about same-sex attraction and homosexual practice and that kind of thing, and we looked at each other. And then he said, if you have long hair, that's a sign you're he headed that way. <laughs> and I looked at my brother and said, at least we hadn't done that. He said, there's still time. <laughs> so uh, th I'm, not, I'm not coming at you that way. Please understand that if you have sympathies that way. And I'm not trying to badger anybody over the head. I'm the worst sinner I know. I need Jesus more than anybody I've ever seen. 
or met because I know something of the blackness of my own heart. And God should have lifted all restraint on me and let me perish, but in his gentle and tender mercy he came after me and he caught me. But I also have to be faithful to what the text says. And so with that caveat, let me proceed. Because it's, it's difficult and it, it's a, a lot to wrestle with. And I can see that this is going to be more than a one-part sermon. So uh, here, that said, Paul does focus on uh, sexual issues. The Bible asserts humans know enough to be culpable. And so God delivers over people to degrading passions. Um, it, this is even true in the uh, providence of God and his government over his people in the Old Testament. Sometimes God handed the Israelites' enemies over to them in defeat. But by contrast, when Israel persisted in breaches of the covenant and covenantal infidelity, God handed them over to their enemies. So God hands people over to evil habits and desires in this judicial abandonment. He lifts the restraints. He lets people sin as they please. This also expresses his wrath because idolatry is the root of every depravity. Paul mentions it twice. Verse 23, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. Verse 25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. Verse 23, for images rep resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And verse 25b, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. So degrading passions is idolatry. It is idolatry. So is greed. But degrading passions is what our text is focusing on here. Romans 1, 23 to 25 proclaims that people do not simply deny or forget God. They exchange the creator for a creature, an image of a man and an animal. And this idolatry includes um, worship of semi-divine humans in ancient uh, narratives and paganism, such as emperors and pharaohs, as well as reverence for ancestors, patrons, teachers, such as the Buddha. Idolatry can be also spiritual in nature, featuring devotion to prosperity, pleasure, power, peace, and comfort. So idolatry is a big tent item in the Bible. In God's economy, the punishment fits the crime. Uh, for example, in the penal code of Exodus 22, verse 7 and 9, thieves who steal animals make double restitution to their victims. This embodies perfect justice, for the thief loses precisely what the victim would have lost, one animal, and his victim regains his animal and, and gains exactly what he would have lost, one animal. In this case, the punishment for exchanging the truth of God for a lie and becoming an idolater is the Lord declares, you say that there is no God, okay, I withdraw and I give you over to your own desires. That is so sad. That is so sad. And we see it every day. In Paul's words, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for the women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. 
Now, he's going to use this phrase, nature. What does he mean by nature? He means a creational norm, a creational ordinance or standard. Everything that's wrong with the world is a violation of Genesis 1 through 2 in many respects. Everything we see that is horrible happening in our culture is a violation of creation norms. And one of the creation norms is God made us in his image and he made us male and female. And the Bible insists that there are no other categories. And so with that, a violation of that would be to tamper with that concept. God gives them over to dishonorable passions. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Rebellion against the Creator leads to rejection of His design. When people dethrone God, they enthrone their lust, their passions, their desires. And when they exchange God for idols, they trade God's order for one govern, governed by dishonorable passions. Specific terms merit attention. First, Greek and Jewish writers such as Plato, Plutarch, Musonius, Rufus, Philo, and Josephus use contrary to nature to describe deviant sexual activity, especially homosexuality. Then Mosonius, a Stoic philosopher, said, but of all sexual relations, those involving adultery are most unlawful, and no more tolerable are those of men with men because it is a monstrous, monstrous thing and contrary to nature. Although it is impossible to read nature perfectly since the fall, Paul affirms that there is a natural order designed by God for men and for women that we can follow and that we can discern. The term dishonorable passion shows that the desire or passion for unnatural sex acts brings dishonor. It's wrong to commit shameless acts. It's wrong to have a passion for them. That is, to desire a deed that violates God's will is already sinful, even if one never acts on it. You see, the desires, this is what Jesus did when Jesus came. He said in the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard it said that it is a sin against God to commit adultery. But Jesus says, but if a man looks upon a woman with lust in her, his heart to desire her and to have her sexually, he's already committed adultery in his heart. And so it isn't just the act. We would like to think it's just the act. It is the depraved desires, the dishonorable desires of wanting that as... Uh, my uh, good friend, uh, Rosaria Butterfield, says, homosexuality is a sin to be mortified, not a behavior to be modified. And so um, I think she's right on all counts there. Um, so 
it's clear that if I want to punch somebody in the face because he proves me wrong in a discussion, that desire is evil and sinful, even if I don't act on it. If the thought enters my mind and I immediately reject it, repudiate it, we call that temptation resisted. As Paul assures us, when temptation comes, God will provide a way of escape, and the way of the escape is to resist the deed and actual transgression by not striking a man and by resisting the thought of putting it out of the mind and taking no interest or pleasure in it. And so Romans 1 indicates that a lust for unnatural relations is itself evil and a result of original sin. Yet it need not lead to actual sin if we resist both the act and the thought. Now, some of you may have never considered that my hatred for another human being in God's eyes, the only thing standing between that and murder being actual is the act, not committing the act. But the sin is still present. That's why, that's why none of us have any hope at all except in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're not good people. We need to give up on the idea of being good people. And you know in what sense I mean, good in order to win God's approval. Once we have his approval through grace, he changes us. And we do become people who desire to obey him. But homosexual acts ignore God's order. Romans 1, of course, leads us to see it as an unnatural act and uh, in Romans 1, the reflection on God's creation of mankind, male and female, he ordained that they fill the earth through conjugal love. Homosexual acts ignore God's order and cannot fill the earth, no matter what somebody tells you. Richard Hayes rightly called homosexual behavior a sacrament of the anti-religion of human beings who refuse to honor God as creator. When human beings engage in homosexual activity, they enact an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual reality, the rejection of the Creator's design. His design, the language of exchange, emphasizes the direct parallelism between the rejection of God and the rejection of created sex roles. By the way, Richard Hayes is no conservative. He's a, a New Testament scholar at Duke University and probably couldn't pass an exam to get into the PCA. But he at least recognizes morality and what the Bible says about it. If there is no creator, there is no created order. If nothing has a design, then we cannot read nature to know what forms of sex are right. If there is no God, no designer, it is senseless to say that humans are designed to reproduce heterosexually. The atheist believes that mankind can construct order for itself. Western civilization has adopted a utilitarianism as its approach to ethics. I don't know if you've ever heard of utilitarianism. You've probably heard of John Stuart Mill, who is sort of the father of the philosophy and ethics of utilitarianism. Classic utilitarians tell us that an act is good if it brings the greatest good or pleasure for the greatest 
number of people. Today, utilitarians call it an act good if it increases pleasure and reduces suffering without impend impeding the freedom or pleasure of others, since no one has a right to gain pleasure at the expense of another. As a result, most deny that external laws offer an objective basis for disapproving consensual acts between informed adults unless there is a power differential between them, and that's going away. Because you do understand we are headed toward pedophilia. You do understand that. That uh, Years ago, I was driving from him here to Santa Fe, New Mexico, uh, for a little time away, and I was listening to a broadcast on some AM radio station, and the guy presented the case for pedophilia as becoming a reality within this generation. And I sat there with my mouth open, and surely not. I hate to say it, his case is getting stronger every day. Now, not that it has never existed, it has, and we'll talk about that shortly. Um, when Paul mentions that men and women were consumed with passions for one another, he uses, and this is exegetical, out of the text, he uses terms for women and men, thalus for women, arson for men, that seem to allude to the creation order. They appear in the Greek translation of Genesis 1.27 called the Septuagint. Male and female, he created them. Jesus used the same term when quoting Genesis in Matthew 19.4. The rest of Romans 1.27 speaks for itself. Burning with desire suggests a loss of self-control. Lust leads to men committing shameless acts with men. By naming both lust and acts, Paul prohibits homosexual acts in general, not just one or two of the forms mentioned above. Finally, there is an unspecified penalty for their error. Error translates the Greek word planes, which denotes a straying from the truth in thought or conduct. The tenor of Romans 1 suggests that the penalty is that God abandons them to their ways. The penalty is due or necessary because God cannot allow his created order to be so violated without a just punishment. When Paul calls homosexual acts unnatural, he enters into uh, a fundamental agreement with the culture of his time. Uh, more importantly, Romans 1 contributes to the unified biblical teaching that runs from Genesis 1 and 2 and Genesis 19 to Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20 to the teaching of Jesus in Matthew 19 to 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Timothy 1, and Jude 7, sexual intimacy and procreation occur between a man and woman in the context of marriage. What did God create a hammer for? <laughs> I know that seems like a non-sequitur, but follow me. What did God create a hammer for? And I have a watch on. Let's say I take my watch off. Little kid, first time in church, noticed that uh, there were lots of things in the church he asked his friend about the first time he was there. And he says, what does that mean when the preacher does that? And what does that mean when the preacher does that? And the little boy was sitting there, and he leaned over, and he said, what does it mean when the preacher takes off his watch? And he said, Sadly, nothing. <laughs> What's the purpose of a hammer? 
is to nail, to beat something, right? To drive a nail. Now, if I use a watch to drive a nail, what's going to happen? Yeah, this cheap thing's going to fall apart, right? It's going to tear it up, and it will no longer be what? Useful to tell time. <laughs> it will lose its purpose. When we stray from the created order, we are trying to drive a nail with a watch. It is against nature. Think about that. It is against nature. Now, I could add to this adultery. I could add to this fornication. I could add to this, but Paul here is focusing on homosexuality, which since it's such a hot buzz button issue in our culture today, I felt like I should focus on it. But I'm not going to say, is homosexuality the gravest, worst sin anybody can commit? No. There are other grievous, heinous sins that other people can commit. But unrepented of puts you in the most dangerous position a human being can be in. And secondly, let's see if I have time to get there. I need to take a, uh, a hammer to this watch and that clock and just keep going, but I'm not going to. Um, <laughs> when Paul calls homosexual acts unnatural, he stands in a tradition. 1 Corinthians 6.19 establishes the unity of Scripture by alluding to Leviticus 20. Paul's theme is global, that those who persist in sin will not inherit the kingdom of God. He names a whole catalog of sins and says, if you persist in these sins, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says to the congregation, but such were some of you. But God well, worked in you, you repented of your sin, and now you inherit the kingdom of God. So it's a common, common practice. The phrase... Uh, this includes men who practice homosexuality in that passage. The phrase men who practice homosexuality is very interesting here. It translates two Greek words, malakos and arsenokoitis. Yeah, that makes sense. Arsenokoitis, which means coitus with men. Malakos means soft. It's a term used for soft clothing, sexualized men, and men who are passive partners in homosexual activities, including boys who were passive in the practice of pederasty. Arsenicoitis comes from the Septuagint translation of Leviticus 20, which reads, And whoever lies with a man as with a wo woman in bed, they both have done an abominable and are uh, an abomination and are liable to death. Now, lest you think that an abomination is only uh, homosexual intercourse, no. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. Pride and a haughty spirit are an abomination to the Lord. So it isn't in a class by itself, but it is that. It is an abomination. Um, together, the two terms forbid every conceivable type of same-sex intercourse. This includes situations that could feature unequal power, boys, slaves. Yet Leviticus and 1 Corinthians state that both parties, not one, have committed an abomination, so Scripture has more than power 
disparities in view, the biblical teaching on homosexuality found in seven passages states no exceptions. Decades of liberal efforts, and I'm talking theological liberalism, to weaken or obfuscate the biblical teaching on homosexuality have completely failed. Romans 1 calls homosexual acts shameful, unnatural, and self-punishing. Honest, critical scholars admit this candidly. Here's one by the name of Luke Johnson. He says this, I have little patience with efforts to make Scripture say something other than what it says through appeals to linguistics or cultural subtleties. The exegetical situation is straightforward. We're not to read into the Bible text what we want it to say. We're to read out of the biblical text what it actually says. That's ex of Jesus. We appeal explicitly to the weight of our own experience and to the experience of thousands of others have witnessed to, which tells us that the claim of our own sexual orientation is in fact to accept the way in which God has created us. No, he did not create you that way. No, he did not. I know people say that. And I know that's a strong cultural argument. But in the beginning, God created us in his image though flawed we may be and though you may believe you were created that way that is sin blinding you not ontological reality it is not your being I have no patience for people who are dishonest with the biblical text I have no patience with that and, and they know what they're doing now let me get down to I'm going to have to say verses 28 to 32, which is a whole lot of horrible stuff for next week. But I do want to say some other things about point two and three, because I think we probably need to look at that more than anything else today, because our tendency is always to uh, misunderstand or uh, condemn people and you know some churches in an effort to appear relevant to the culture and to seem loving and welcoming especially to homosexual people have downplayed or denied the clear teaching of scripture on that but on the other hand some churches are just nasty about it and very self-righteous with a very legalistic tone they see homosexuality as the sin that matters or if they do not, they speak as though it was. They do not seek to love or welcome homosexuals at all. They may seek to love and go alongside their Hindu neighbors or friends who are committing adultery, but not homosexual people. We might characterize this as a conservative, hyper-conservative legalistic approach. Paul doesn't do either. He is clear that homosexuality is literally a shameful over-desire, but remember that he lists a lot of other sins for which many of us strike a lot closer to home. Envy, gossiping, disobedience, pride, disloyalty. And people who do these things are the same people among whom he wants to have a gospel harvest. Now, how do we see ourselves in Romans chapter 1? Well, the only way we can do that is keep reading through verses 28 to 32 which we're not going to do today but what I'm trying to get across to you is 
if you are not the worst sinner you know, then I don't think you really even get or understand the gospel. Because God's word is like a light. I remember when I was, uh, I don't know, 14 or 15 years old, and I was playing football for the first time, and it was in the summertime, and my skin went insane. I mean, I had bumps growing out of bumps. It was awful. It was red. It was distorted. And so uh, I remember being in a particular store near our, my hometown, and uh, I had been walking around the store kind of, you know, flirting and smiling with girls and stuff. And, uh, you know, I wasn't married at the time, so that was okay. But I was doing all that, and I remember going to the bathroom in this store. For some reason, it had different lighting. And I remember looking at the mirror thinking, I am not <laughs> an animal. I mean, like the elephant man. It was an elephant man moment for me. I had never seen my skin look so horrible. And what I wanted to do was find a hat big enough to, or a hoodie or something to pull over my face and leave the store as soon as possible. Why? Because I got in good lighting and I finally saw it was so bad that my dad, who would hardly ever take it to the doctor, took me to the dermatologist the next day. And, you know, it goes away eventually, you hope. But they say the time your mind, your face clears up, your mind gets fuzzy, so what are you going to do? <laughs> anyway, the Bible is like a huge opening megastore spotlight summoning the community to get the best deals. The Bible focuses and points and shows us our wickedness and our uncleanness and our unrighteousness. And it's there, and it's ugly. We have no right to throw a stone at anyone else. What we do need to do is repent of our own sin. And we do need to take the gospel to people no matter what their particular sin complex may be. It isn't that, um, you know, I have... I have a person in my family, uh, I won't go into details because that's none, nobody's business, but they're not in my immediate family, but in relative, close relative, who is married, a woman married to a woman. And she called me to ask me what I thought before they did it. And I sent her Rosaria Butterfield's books and every book I'd ever read that I thought did a decent job. Rosaria Butterfield, by the way, was a left liberal English professor in either, was it Minnesota? Anybody want to correct me on that? Minnesota. And anyway, God saved her and showed her uh, what, was it, what it was about. So I pled with her. I prayed with her. She, she is married to the woman now. I still see her. I still hug her. I love her. Uh, I try to, try to cover her with love. She knows exactly how. I think and feel what I think the Bible says about it. And I think that's the appropriate posture to take towards someone like that. But there also comes a point where you can't, you just don't need to talk anymore. Uh, I think silence is appropriate at a certain point when they refuse and refuse and refuse and refuse. And that's hard and heartbreaking. So I'm not talking about something I don't deal with. and I'm not talking about people I don't talk to. But just like adultery is such a horrible thing, it disfigures the model of Christ and his church that 
that every marriage in this church is to represent the person of Christ in the church. The husband is to love his wife as Christ loves the church. The woman is to submit to her husband as the church does to Christ. And yet, adultery totally demolishes that figure. So does homosexual relationships or lesbian relationships. Demolish the beauty of that thing. And so... The thing that we all need to do in particular is there is enough sin in each and every one of us to damn us for all of eternity. That's why we need a Savior. That's why Jesus came. Jesus died for the dishonorable passions. Jesus died for the shame. Jesus died for the self-hatred. He took all of that upon himself, mine yours and anyone else who ever believes and so it's not a question of whether or not jesus loves sinners of course he loves sinners he spent much time with prostitutes and sinners and i'm sure people who were homosexual as well and he sat at the table with had fellowship with them he loved them but he calls all of us to repentance and what is repentance? Repentance literally at the core of it means I stop walking away from the Savior, turn around and come back to the Savior and cast myself upon his mercy and he will change me. It isn't that I go out and try to change my ways, go straight, come back. No, it's turning because I can't help myself. It's turning because I can't change myself. It's turning because I can't save myself. And it's coming back to the Savior who will welcome you. There is joy in the presence of the angels in heaven every time a sinner repents. There's a party in heaven. I'm sure it's the best wine you can get. Because when Jesus turned the water into wine, it wasn't two buck chuck. It was the best wine they said at the wedding feast. Now, if that offends you, you're going to have a whole lot more to get over hanging around me. But, that, but, but what I'm trying to tell you is there's hope, there's hope, there's hope, there's hope, there's hope for anyone and everyone in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this text, although it exposes, it reveals it displays before us something is wrong with our hearts. Every one of us. There's something badly wrong with us, and it's called sin. And it's so offensive to you and your holiness and your glory and so shaming and degrading to us that it destroys us. But we cannot save ourselves. We can only be saved by the one who came to seek and to save the lost, the one who came to call sinners, not the righteous, not the self-righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, fathers, we continue to worship. May we worship as those who are grateful for your deliverance and salvation. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.